0: Welcome to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis is all about our city as an urban place, including its neighborhoods, buildings, pathways, and parks, as well as the people who shape it. Join us each week as community leaders and commentators talk with me about our shared built environment. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm the host, Emily Trenum. And this week, I've got Susanna Barton as my guest. Susanna is the new-ish administrator of comprehensive planning in the Division of Planning and Development, which is a Memphis, a joint Memphis and Shelby County entity, I guess you should say. And, and, and I guess from a practical perspective, what that means is she is over the whole Memphis 3.0 plan, the administration implementation of that, and which we've talked about on the show. John Zene has been on the show, and we've talked about that in a number of contexts over the past year or so. So welcome, Susanna.
1: Thanks, Emily. Glad to be here.
0: So the reason for me inviting you on the show is that the the Memphis 3.0 comprehensive plan was done, you know, a year or two ago. And and now it's really, um, even though it's, I'm going to make a bad joke here, because I'm going to say what you're, the work you're doing now is Memphis 3.0, 2.0. Um, <laughs> because <laughs> I like to think that I'm clever. Um, right. Because yeah. it's the, it's sort of the next phase of right. that of that. And what it is, is really some smaller, small area plans for some different neighborhoods and locations in Memphis. So that's sort of the, the big picture about what we're going to be talking about today. So, so Susanna, let's sort of start off by like, what is um, what is this work you've just finished doing these small area plans mm-hmm. and how do they connect to, or the next step in the 3.0 planning process?
1: Sure. So I'll start with, you know, kind of what is a small area plan and and to your point, how does it really tie into Excel or to Memphis 3.0? So small area plans allow a community and the city to really conduct a deeper level of analysis and then develop more site specific detail that a citywide comprehensive plan can't do. So what they do is they they allow the community to really focus um, on unique issues to their community. That could be access to parks and green spaces. It could be blight remediation. Again, it really depends on the community. Through the process, the community can really set priorities for policy changes and then future project implementation and investments in their neighborhood. Um, So I think it's important to really say that it allows a community to prioritize investments Um, at at a very local level. And so the result of a small area plan is that the community and the city have this document that really illustrates the community vision and then guides investment and development in that neighborhood. So you referenced that we did several small area plans. We completed several small area plans in 2021. We completed seven small area plans, which were in Klondike, Highland Heights, Hollywood, Hyde Park, Oak Haven, Orange Mound, Soulsville, and South City. And they complement two that were completed in 2020 in Raleigh and Whitehaven.
0: One of the interesting things about these plans is that they are small. They are small yeah. areas. I mean, I guess it goes without saying, but a lot of times, you know, neighborhood plans are, are pretty big. Like you could do a a neighborhood plan for Raleigh. And that's how a lot of how before Memphis 3.0, that's a lot of the kind of plans the division of planning and development put out and mm-hmm. they were, but these plans are actually small yeah. and, and they, um, they all focus around these, you know, anchors that right. were identified in the Memphis. So just remind everybody, um, you know, what the sort of anchor, the, the identification of anchors as sort of, I don't want to call the theme of Memphis 3.0, but sort of what Memphis 3.0 is based on. Almost the foundation is these anchors. um, And then because these plans are really um, a deep dive into the A lot of times it's an intersection in several blocks.
1: That's right. Right. In fact, that's a great example. Um, The Oak Haven small area plan is really primarily focused at the Shelby and Chulahoma intersection. That was really identified as a major priority by the community. And so if we're going to make an investment there, let's really target that um, area and then, you know, hope to see ripples from there. But to answer your question about anchors um, coming out of 3.0, the plan for growth and change in 3.0 is really concentrated around these community anchors. And those are as we said in the plan, they're really the places where communities come together where you see convening and activity. So they typically include a mix of uses, um, services, civic activities. Um, There's usually higher densities of housing, uh, commercial activity, employment. But again, to your point, I think it is so interesting. um, You said in hindsight, a brilliant strategy, and I can take no credit for Memphis 3.0 because I was not here, but I I really just can't say enough about the team uh, that that did this and, and and Ashley Cash and her leadership. There was so much that was involved in the strategy was really incredible. And the result was a great plan. Um, And when we talk about the small area plans, we talk about really honing in on locations, on places, on anchors, and really steering the focus and then ultimately the investment. Um, and then from there, right, we, we hope the intention is that we see ripple effects from from that in investment.
0: So how were these, I realize you weren't involved in selecting these areas the small area planning process mm-hmm. was underway because mm-hmm. you're relatively new in your role. But how how were they selected? I, mean, I can imagine. Right. I know some. I know some people in the community development world that are squeaky wheels. And um, so, w- when I was looking at the neighborhoods, I was thinking, well, there's some squeaky wheel. There was some squeaky wheels there, but also there was Oakhaven, which which was I was kind of surprised to see included, not disappointed. And mm-hmm. but I also wonder if you if they were striving for some geographical diversity, not getting into every planning district, but trying to so add the really, love as it were.
1: Right. That's really funny because you must have read my notes um, in preparation because actually geographic diversity is in the notes. So um, you know, a lot of it, I think you you probably pretty summarized it pretty well is that I mean a lot of it was really around you know, were there existing um, community efforts or initiatives underway that could be CDC driven, right? or it could have been city driven. Is there planned city investment happening somewhere? Um, are there plans for you know uh, frequent transit or transit initiatives happening? And then to your point, also acknowledging that we'd like to have some diversity in terms of geography and where these investments are located, um, but I really can't say enough about really trying to. The way I think of it is like grouping investments, right? So you know, let us just get more bang for our buck. So can can we build off of planned initiatives or efforts that are going that are happening, and can we then? focus additional resources.
0: Well, that makes sense. I mean, like, I'm just, just sort of picking on the Heights, which, of course, it's a Highland Heights small area plan, but there's the Heights line. Right. Know, this this, this um, connector along National Street. Well, I mean, the, the Heights CDC is already out there, you know, raising money, doing planning, and have um, and happened for several years. And so it I mean. makes sense to... Um, to leverage their activities. It's the proverbial win-win to right. do small. And and of course, there's already, in addition, this is completely separate, uh, some summer avenue planning um, that's right. happening. And and so, that's right. that's so bringing all those things together, I'm sure it's a little more efficient, but also it just builds on everyone's efforts.
1: Right. Um, and, and I think Highland Heights is a great example that the, you know, the Heights line uh, the CDC really did such a tremendous job leading that effort. And then through the small area planning process, what we heard, what we were told is that where the Heights line really kind of ends, or you could say starts right on national, then there was this opportunity for a kind of public plaza, a gateway, not only to the Heights line, but also the community. And it would could serve as a really wonderful opportunity to bridge that gap between like summer and then ultimately fax and So, um, and then it would also, so the small area plan then identifies ways to tie then some improvements then over to summer, which, you know, I hope will be sort of an initial investment teaser into some, you know, longer term, much more impactful um, redesign efforts on summer, really focused on safety and accessibility um, and to really facilitate a, an, an environment and a corridor that supports that, you know, local diverse business community. So.
0: Yeah, I'm excited about that work. And, and if anyone's interested, I did do a Memphis Metropolis program on the Summer yes. Avenue planning I get probably a few months ago. No, I uh-huh. think I had Braden from your office on as yeah, a guest. Sure did. So yeah. I'm I'm very partial to summer. So I looking forward to any opportunity to feature it on the show.
1: Yeah, that's because summer is a really great
0: street. Summer is a great street. So, just briefly, what were the what was the process for these plans? Like, what were the different steps you went through? Yeah, I
1: can absolutely tell you that. So, we started in March of 2021, where um, so each location for the seven small area plans, we held kind of an, an initial engagement, which was with. Um, like a stakeholder group. So it could be community members, residents, CDC leaders. So this focus group, um, we reviewed the priorities for the area, the larger planning district that came out of 3.0. And again, any current or existing or ongoing plans or efforts initiated by the community or the city. And so those discussions kind of helped us hone in on um, priorities. So in April, we had these initial public workshops where we kind of reintroduced the anchor areas and these focus areas to the community. Um, Folks broke out into small groups to really discuss priorities. And then they actually prioritized various designs and interventions that were discussed. And so this was really like a platform for us to generate ideas um, from the community. uh, And then that would drive our concept development. So then in July, so between April and July, then concepts were honed based on the initial meeting. And then in July, we had a final public meeting where we shared those concepts and we asked for additional feedback, which was then of course taken and rev- designs were revised. Um, and then from there, we were able to prioritize projects for implementation based on those meetings in that process. We finalized all of the plans and released them publicly in November of 2021, um, and I, and simultaneously, right, we we have used those project priorities, which include construction estimates, which is incredibly helpful, um, and those have been how that has been how we have um, prioritized projects for Accelerate Memphis.
0: Yeah, I was impressed by how granular um in a lot of ways the yeah. the the plan having seen a lot of neighborhood plans over the years, you know, the the level of detail and the budgeting and the information about, you know, market readiness. It was real it was I was impressed by that. So just um before we leave the planning process, okay. um you know, I can imagine there were some sort of overarching themes Right. You know, blight and, you know, Mm -hmm. pedestrian safety, those kinds of things. Were there any, did any sort of themes emerge that's kind of surprised you or, yeah, that just weren't sort of what you would expect, you know, a lot of these neighborhoods to be really concerned about? And those are not to minimize those ones that I mentioned because those are issues everywhere.
1: I don't, I mean, you're absolutely right. We saw these very kind of consistent, common themes. Um, and truthfully, I think, um, I mean, I am. I hope that people know that I'm very open and honest about my concerns about our, you know, the safety for those, honestly, for anyone on our streets in the city of Memphis, I, you know, specifically pedestrians and cyclists. Um, but, you know, I think we are have built our city in such a way that we, we move, we like to move cars very fast throughout the city. So you've noticed um, that too. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's kind of glaring. Um, yeah. So, I, you know, we have a lot of room for improvement in that area. And I think that, um, you know, the community rightfully so doesn't let that fall by the wayside. And I think that's wonderful. So you know, it's just a constant reminder that we um, there's so much room for improvement and thinking about all of the different users of streets and how we really need to prioritize safety. So that was really common, as well as things like, you know, park improvements and access to green space. Um, And then the one thing that was, I don't know, was necessarily surprising, but was so interesting and refreshing is that working on this granule granular level really allowed communities to have such site-specific conversations. So, you know, um, you'll see in the small area plans where folks have identified, you know, say an underutilized commercial strip, or it could be small or actually really large. And to say, you know, this used to be a hub of activity. And here it is at an anchor intersection. And we have the, you know, basically an empty commercial strip, commercial area, huge surface parking lot. You know, wouldn't it be great if we could rethink this? And so that came out of the process. And so these like site-specific suggestions for infill development were really those locations were chosen and driven by the community and they align so well with the things we were just talking about around around corridor improvements and you know safety improvements streetscape improvements so those were that was really interesting to me and i think has come out in the plan then you know the idea is is that if we as a city can specifically with accelerate memphis make these public realm infrastructure improvements that then we can kind of, we can set the stage for that then private development to come in and focus on that, you know, the infill, there are things that we can do to encourage that. So that's, that's really exciting. I I will say the one other thing that I thought that came out of one plan in particular, that is really interesting is, um, Soulsville Folks talked a lot about movement. They talked a lot about how do I get around and through my neighborhood. So you know there is a, a lot of investment or planned investment, which is wonderful, on improving kind of the main streets around the perimeter or the main roadways in the perimeter of Sulphur. But what folks were interested in was, um, you know, how do I move in and through my neighborhood? We have broken or non-existing side existing sidewalks we have you know the infrastructure is really poor and so they talked about wanting a, a like a walking and biking loop and so you'll see in the soulsville plan that there is this proposed loop that i think is really great and some of it will be on road and it calls for Redoing sidewalks, you know, what is ultimately big, basic infrastructure, but will have a really big impact. And then there also are specific sites that are um, are highlighted as opportunities for infill development, really thinking about that missing middle housing. So these pocket neighborhoods. And the interesting thing is, is that it calls for this walking loop, this trail to go through those pocket neighborhoods. Um, so that's, you know, it's not gonna happen overnight, but I, I thought that was a really great idea.
0: Well, that's interesting because, you know, I've been involved in, you know some neighborhood planning over the years, and that um, that connectivity within the neighborhood is very important because sometimes people, sometimes people can't travel very short distances. Like people might be two blocks from the senior center, but -hmm. the street they're walking on does not have sidewalks. I'm using that as an example. You know, sometimes people have, have, or because we're so car focused, people don't realize how close some of these assets are. And if you can build in and then through wayfinding, whatever, you know, let people right. know about right. these connectivity components right. that can be huge in really improving quality of life within a neighborhood.
1: Right, right, absolutely. I'm glad you also mentioned um, wayfinding. Not, but one thing that came out um, in particular in a couple of places was really building off of the Mem- Memphis Heritage Trail signage, and so using some using that or expanding that to again to kind of mark the walking loop or connectivity within the neighborhood. So yeah, there was a lot of really great things that came out. Um, I think that also the refreshing thing about the small area planning process is that it allowed communities because they were able to hone in and focus on very specific sites. Um, it, I think it felt a lot more real, you know? Um, I mean, as a planner, uh, you know, comprehensive long range planning makes a ton of sense to me, but it's hard for the community to grasp that.
0: Well, sure, it seems very I abstract.
1: You don't, know, it's very abstract. And, you know, you're asking, like, but well, when am I going to see this? And, you know, what does this really mean for my day to day, to your point about how I can get two blocks to the senior center?
0: Well, that's a great, uh, transition to my next question, but first I wanted to let people know that they're listening to Memphis Metropolis and WYSR 91.7 FM. And I'm talking to Susanna Barton from the Division of Planning and Development. We're talking about some really neighborhood level planning that her team just completed in a bunch of different areas called small area plans. So um, it is unusual Susanna, you sort of alluded to this, that a lot of times when planning is done, there's not really any funding connected to it immediately. Um, And the expectation is that the priorities and recommendations in the plan will inform, um, you know, future funding from whatever government entity is responsible for that. I mean, we're very fortunate. You mentioned Accelerate Memphis. Just to remind everyone, you know, Accelerate Memphis is essentially, I'm really, Simplifying here is is a is a fund that uh, the mayor and city council created by issuing bonds that's going to go over a period of time to really to do all kinds of work at the neighborhood level parks, community centers, you know streetscape improvements and um it's it's and it and it's the timing couldn't be better because if you look at these small area plans, some of the things, the priorities are already, um, there's funding in place to them, which is awesome. But my question to you is though, is, is that's great. And that's, it's actually quite a bit of money, but, um, but there's, there's, there are, there are things in there that, especially when you think about housing subsidies and things, there's definitely things in there that Accelerate Memphis just can't pay for. So how do you see, Going down the line, those things, well, will the Division of of Housing Community Development roll those things into their, they say, Mm -hmm. oh, Klondike, they identify this priority in the area of housing. So we'll Mm -hmm. put some of our limited dollars, I'm using it as an example. How do you envision some of these other things being funded outside of Accelerate Memphis?
1: But so, accelerate Memphis allows us to kind of come out of the gate, building off of these small area plans, and and pretty significantly chip away at a lot of the projects um, that were identified and prioritized. Specifically, we're going to focus the money on those that infrastructure investment, those the public realm infrastructure investments. So from there. Um, I think it's very similar, as we were discussing earlier, like, the, um, you know, the anchor strategy coming out of Memphis 3.0 is that we're making a decision to start somewhere. So we are starting with this infrastructure investment um, in these communities coming out of the small area plans with the Accelerate Memphis funds over the next two years. And then we're already, to answer your next question, we're already looking at how can we seek and prioritize funding for the next round of improvements. So you'll also see in in the small area plans in the back where we have the cost estimates we prioritized from there, so we called out which ones were short term and were going to be funded by Accelerate Memphis, and then from there, how do we build off of those so we have medium term and long term investments? So that's really what's going to drive the next round of investments. I we're talking about putting it into the CIP.
0: We are wait wait CIP. Just don't make me ring my bell. What's the <laughs> CIP?
1: Community Improvement Project. <laughs>
0: So that's a capital city's capital budget, essentially.
1: Yes. Capital budget.
0: Annual. um, That pays for the capital budget essentially pays to build stuff. That's what I always say. It's not not operating dollars. It pays to build stuff or fix stuff.
1: I will steal that from you and use it going forward as a non jargon, you know, um, there's also TIP, which is a transportation improvement program. And so we are working with engineering right now and a submission for an application um, for, for several of the projects out of out of the small area plans. Um, you know, it's, it's tough, though, that that TIP cycle this next round is twenty three to twenty six.
0: Um, And then, you know, 2023 to 2026.
1: Yes. Sorry. Thank you. Um, And so you build off of it. You work, you go into design and then you apply again for more funding to, to, to um, you know, move the process forward. So again, going back to Accelerate Memphis, most projects that are identified um, in planning take many years to happen the implementation
0: especially transportation especially and, and transportation, transportation and re- and related projects yes that's right that's and they, right and they, and they cost a fortune they
1: cost a fortune <laughs> and they take an incredibly long time to plan for and then and then budget for right get it in that capital budget and then and then implement. So, um, you know, we're starting now on those medium-term projects identified in the small area plans and, and identifying potential funding. I do think it's also worth noting that um, the way that the administration identified the opportunity to for the bond funding for Accelerate Memphis is, is creative. And so I personally really hope that Accelerate Memphis functions also um, as an opportunity, sort of a pilot for us to look at how can we use creative um, kind of non-traditional funding mechanisms to get projects on the ground more quickly. Because ultimately that's how we're able to show the community that we're doing what
0: you told us you wanted to do, Right. Well then it starts to attract private investment. I mean Absolutely. that's I mean that's ultimately, you know, you want the public dollars to seed the I and mean, that's not gonna happen in every neighborhood, of course. But sure. but but in a lot of places you're hoping that the public dollars are gonna are gonna light a light a match and um and that there'll be private Sector dollars coming in. I mean, I'm I'm telling some kind of big projectification advocate, and I don't mean to sound that way, but, you know, but, but that's the idea, but it's the government dollars, the investment will, um, will sort of move the market a little bit. And right. so other parts of this plan can be implemented, not just with not just the government paying for everything.
1: Right. And and that, that was that's the ripple effect that I talked about earlier. And um, the you'll see, to your point, the small area plans also identify projects and they we broke them out by what's public investment and what's private investment, which I think is helpful for everyone to be on the same page about,
0: you know. So who's, I mean, is you at the neighborhood level, who's going to, you know, champion these plans going forward? You know, some of these neighborhoods, of course, have... You know, a lot of neighborhood capacity. We talked about the Heights, Klondike, Mookie City, you know, Hollywood, Hyde Park. You've got advocates in those neighborhoods who are going to hold your feet to the fire or hold city council's feet to the fire and to say, you know, you did this plan for our neighborhood. You did these four things and it was great, but now we need these other seven. And so who's, but not every neighborhood that you have planned for has that. So is it going to be your division or is it going to be, it is. Okay.
1: Yes, it is. Um, and, you know, and it's really a way for us to hold our own feet to the fire. Um, I think that, you know, in, you'll see in, well, in the actions in identified in Memphis 3.0, right. The actions to accomplish the goals, the responsibilities are sometimes joint division, city division. Um, sometimes they're also partners. I mean, you know, they're community agencies, you um, public private partnerships. So, but our division tracks the progress and monitors the progress towards, um, accomplishing the goals set forth in Memphis 3.0. We do that every year through our plan amendment process. And so we will continue to track small area plan actions and measures of success annually as well.
0: So, um, So second to last question, are you going to, in 2022 or 2023, are you going to do some other neighborhoods?
1: Yes, but I'm not going to tell you where. Okay, that's Um, fine. (laughs) I just, that's fine. You don't have to tell me. No, we are. um, Unfortunately, for the purposes of this, I... If you were to ask me like in a month or six weeks, I could probably tell you. But um, the intention is absolutely to do more small area plans. We have had a couple of communities that have reached out to us and inquired about the process. And so we're working to finalize, you know, where exactly those will be and, and what that will look like. Um, but we, I envision that we will do another handful of small area plans in 2022 and continue that going forward. Um
0: So yeah, I can imagine uh, some of them that are on the list that, you know, sort of obvious ones that didn't make this first cut. So. Sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because uh, you know, I, I keep referencing, but also available on our website is there is a small area planning guide that the our department released in December of 2020. And, um, that is, I think, a pretty great tool. It really, there's like a decision matrix in there. So a community um, could actually initiate a small area planning process on its own. It could it could lead it and or lead it with a consultant and have uh, us, our department and staff, support it. Um, so there are a lot of ways to go about it. And I think um, what we're also hoping in 2022, the intention is that we will um, do I think maybe a deeper dive into public engagement around the small area planning process. What is it and how can you as a community member and a resident uh, initiate a process in your own neighborhood?
0: Okay. Yeah. I'll link to the, for sure, the Memphis 3.0 website in the show notes for the podcast version of the show. So, so last question, I guess is, um, you know, all the plans have, you know, they've got these implementation roadmaps how the plan is going to be implemented. They also have policy roadmaps and they touch on policy changes. And I looked at, I I read over most of the plans and of course, not surprisingly, there's some very common policy changes that need to happen. So without getting too much into the weeds, sort of touch on those things, um, those kind of policy changes that you think are needed in these neighborhoods and then how you're going to um, that would be something that would be ha- that would be handled sort of globally, um, I would think, through, you know, changing the you know local laws. And so just briefly touch on a couple of the policy changes and then how you're going to try to um, some may be more easier than others.
1: Yes. Uh, so first of all, I mentioned that we do an annual plan amendment and this process, um, in fact, we have the proposed plan amendment now, and it will go
0: in front of the land use control board in February. And hopefully- an, an amendment to the overarching Memphis 3.0 plan. It is an, plan. an
1: amendment to Memphis 3.0. So it's the annual amendment. Um, and so it does several things, right? It adds these new seven small area plans to the appendices. Um, it makes minor text and grammatical um, corrections, which as you can imagine, uh, you find when you go back and reread a document over time. But it also does things like um, correct maps where some maps when Memphis 3.0 was first completed um, had to be changed because of de-annexed areas. But to your point, um, Memphis 3.0 actually also calls for an ongoing analysis of our unified development code. I was going to say UDC, but um I thought you'd ding your bell. So I, I
0: would. Don't so don't get me started.
1: <laughs> so it's an ongoing analysis of our code to ensure that our zoning regulations actually effectively guide the patterns of development and that they align with what we we laid out in Memphis 3.0. So some there was a comprehensive rezoning that was passed by City Council in November of this year. That is part of the planned amendment. And so what it does is it changes the zoning districts in certain land use categories to better align. Um, We had, truthfully, we had some higher intensity commercial zoning districts that just really didn't align with the, you know, Anchor Main Street land use category. And so, again, looking at these small area plans where we're trying to really help facilitate and support that mixed use infill development We maybe don't want something that is approved by right in a zoning district, like a tire shop or a gas station or what have you.
0: So, in other words, I think what you're saying is that in a lot of situations, and this is, you know, getting sort of wonky, but it's very important. And a lot of times, you know, the, the, how how these properties are zoned just aren't consistent with the plan either um the plan calls for you know some commercial development in a little area that maybe is zoned for housing or sounds like what you're talking about a lot of times is there's things that just are not appropriate for the kind of development we're trying to encourage at these locations whether it's a tire shop or whatever so it's got that match because if that match doesn't happen if that lineman isn't in place those, those, uh, uh, you know, recommendations can't be implemented.
1: Oh, that's absolutely right. I mean, if our zoning regulations aren't in line and compatible with, with that, right? With then, then it can't happen. And things. And on the flip side, things can happen that are not in line with not only 3.0, but also the small area plan. Well, and what
0: the so, the needs and desires of the neighborhood. That's I mean, right. Which is really what the these little plans. I call them little because they're small areas where these plans um, reflect the desires yeah. of the neighborhood. So, so
1: that that was really the biggest slip, that rezoning, um, where we really down zoned. Um, we zone a lot of parcels in. So in, downzone
0: means you went from and it, we went from a int- higher, a intensity more intensive use, use, like yes. a tire shop, like something that would be appropriate on a highway, but not on a neighborhood street. That's right.
1: That's right. Yeah. So we went to a high, from a higher intensity use to a lower intensity use to again be more compatible. Yeah. So I think that that. Um, over time we will have a really positive and I really think noticeable impact as how we, again, how our development patterns, um, as we see them come to out, play out in our city. So.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, that's great. Well, we're out of time, but it's been a great discussion. Um, I'm going to post the you know, in the podcast show notes, I'm going to post a link to the Memphis 2.0 webpage so people can look at the plans for these different neighborhoods, and also get information about you know public meetings you have coming up. that, You know, what have to do with these plan amendments, or even I think you post neighborhood level people can sort of follow and see what um, what's coming up. So, so even listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM, I've been talking to Susanna Barton, who is the Comprehensive Planning Administrator for the Division of Planning and Development for Memphis and Shelby County. It's a mouthful. And we've been talking <laughs> about um, a bunch of small area plans, really sort of very small neighborhood plans that have been produced in late 2021 are in the process of being implemented. So super exciting. Uh, Going to be a lot of really great changes happening in some of these neighborhoods. So Susanna, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thanks, Emily. This was a lot of fun.
0: You're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. Have you checked out any of WYXR's other shows? You can see the whole program guide on our website at wyxr.org. And while you're there, please consider making a donation. We're a brand new station lifting up everything Memphis and we need your support. But don't go away. Stay tuned for the rest of the show. I'm your host, Emily Trenner. You're listening to WYXR 91.7 FM at Crosstown. And the first half of the show, I had Susanna Barton, who's the Administrator of Comprehensive Planning for the Division of Planning and Development, a Memphis and Shelby County agency. And we were talking about some small area planning that was done, really neighborhood, micro-neighborhood level planning that her her office has just done as a follow on on the overall Memphis 3.0 comprehensive planning that was done a couple of years ago. So, and this part of the show, I have regular, I welcome back regular commentator, Charlie Santo, who is uh, heads up the city and regional planning department at University of Memphis and a regular guest. So w- happy new year, Charlie.
2: Happy new year. You're just barely within the statute of limitations on the, on the happy new year. What
0: is the statute of limitations
2: about that? Well, I mean, for me it's the it's the Monday, the first Monday after the New Year's Day is is when I cut it off, but I'll give you a little grace that's period. That's a wow, that's
0: a big grace period.
2: Yeah, I just need to move on, you know.
0: <laughs> You're such a downer. I'm still using it with people that I haven't talked, you know, people I haven't talked to. And of course yeah, it's a I, it's a new year and it's a whole new set of fascinating Memphis Metropolis programs. There you so go. I know you're looking forward to to part of that. I think before we got on the phone, I was telling you that one of the topics I want to do sometime soon is looking at the local impact of the federal infrastructure bill on Memphis and Shelby mm. County. You know, for the, the nerds among us, we're going to get into the weeds on that That's a subject I'm very interested in and among other things. So we've got a number of things in the pipeline. So everyone Keep as I say, keep your dials tuned to ninety one point seven, <laughs> or keep your podcast subscriptions active, and yep. so you can hear those and all the great shows. Many of which I'm sure you'll be on, Charlie.
2: Look forward but to. Well, let's
0: it. talk about. So, so I know you had an opportunity to listen to my interview with Suzanne, Susanna, who I think is um, came out really great. She's relatively new to the position, but has obviously. Um, completely immersed herself in the important work of Memphis 3.0. So I know you listened to it. So what reflections do you have on, on our discussion and on the development of the small area plans?
2: Yeah, I was a great conversation and I have to give you credit for your width, the Memphis 3.0, 2.0 <laughs> thing. I actually got a good kick out of that. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so we've talked about this on the show before uh, when we talked about the Department of Sustainability and Resilience as being part of this fairly new, evolving landscape where there's a focus on an appreciation of uh, uh, for planning in Memphis. And I think this is just more of that. I mean, it's it really I would say that in the last ten years, Memphis has taken a giant leap forward, um, going from a city that really didn't have much of a planning function at all to to one that's you know probably got to be considered most improved. Um,
0: from a planning from perspective, having not for
2: sure. Yeah, I mean, from not having had a, a comprehensive plan since the 80s, um, not really having a functioning, a, a, a real planning function, just an office that kind of stamped uh, plan unit development approvals. And now we have this very structured approach to planning and a staffed-up public office. The, the 3.0 comprehensive plan is, is sort of the high-level citywide vision that sets that tone of build-up, not out. And then embedded in that, you have the 14 district plans that introduced the concept of neighborhood anchors as strategic locations for interventions. And then what we've talked about today that the small area area plans that are the, the small scale neighborhood level act as a way to kind of activate that anchor concept. And you talked a lot about the, the granularity, the, the specificity of it, the really detailed recommendations that are in those small area plans. And it really is you know lighting on this corridor, meeting improvements here, with cost estimates, and each of these plans includes this breakdown. They're really fascinating to look at, um, at least to me. Well,
0: me too, me too.
2: <laughs> but I, I like the breakdown and the kind of the color coding of the here are the things that are the specific public investments, and here are the things that are kind of the the, the set of hoped for private investments. But I, to me, the thing that's most exciting about it, uh, and the most crucial component about this, is, is that we're talking about implementation. Um, and you can read a lot in the, in the planning literature about the, the gap between planning and implementation, right? The proverbial document that sits on a shelf. And there's lots of reasons that you see that that gap. One is, you know, often there's, there's not really a, a defined responsibility in the plan of who's going to carry things out. And there's not necessarily funding in place to do the things that are in the plan. And as you talked about with Susanna, Accelerate Memphis is set up to do just that. There's funding actually to implement some of these signature projects in each of these neighborhoods. And now we can actually start to connect the capital improvement plan to the comprehensive plan, right? You remember when we used to sort of track and map uh, what was in the capital improvement plan um, and, and ask that question, of what's the rationale for things that end up in this document? Well, now that we've got a comprehensive plan and these small area plans, you know, you, you want to start to tie those two things together. Um, and then the other thing is, the other reason for the, that, that gap between uh, creating a plan and having implementation is the lack of connection to to people's every, everyday existence. So when you do the big picture sort of comprehensive plan, that can feel really detached to your everyday citizen and, and neighborhood X, Y, or Z. Um, it can be it can be really hard to sort of to connect to that, to be interested in it. But when you bring it down to the neighborhood level, people do have opinions about, you know, that store around the corner or that intersection that's a block away, and they really do have ideas. And so that's one of the things that I really liked about the district planning process that brought in that discussion, the identification of anchors. Um, I've got some mixed feelings about the anchor approach as sort of a triage approach and what that means for areas that are least well off. But in terms of engaging people and making quick changes, I think there are a lot of advantages to it.
0: Well, one of the things we talked about granularity, but one of the things also I thought about the plans is that I, th- I thought they were, you know, pretty specific about what w- might or might not be possible right now. Every one of the plans has a section on market readiness. And which which contains demographics. And I think those that's a good snapshot for weather because a lot of times, you know, the market, the private real estate market is not sufficient to accomplish some of the things that citizens would like to see. So that is contained in all of them. So it's not just uh, sort of blue sky. There's a little bit of a reality check. And then similarly, the plans that have a housing component, you know, it's very clear that um, the amount of subsidy that will be required to put new housing in this area. And so again, that I mean, first of all, that helps connect that better to other sources of housing funding. But also, I think it gives people reading the plan, people living in the neighborhood, um, you know, they understand that, that there's going to be, the the market conditions are not such to be able to build new housing unless there's, you know, assistance of some kind coming in, whether it's from, you know, bank CRA funds, community reinvestment funds, or whether it's from the city or the federal government. So I think that's important because there's not, there is sometimes a disconnect between a community, community aspirations and what, um, what the market will support, even with, um, government assistance.
2: Yeah, I was really impressed by that as well and I think it's important to look at, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of emphasis on infill housing in these small area plans and that's the way that we're going to get to this build up not out. It's not necessarily by building, you know, sky-rises or or, mid, or even sort of mid-rise uh, apartment buildings. It's going to be this missing middle, the the duplexes and the fourplexes and that's really built into it with this market feasibility study uh, in every case. So I, I think that's a really sophisticated uh, approach that they've taken. So
0: Charlie, I know we've talked about this before, but um, just redefine what the missing middle is. And you, you alluded to it just now, but we kind of throw that around. I would, I'm would i not going to ring my yeah. bell, but I think it's jargon. Like what's missing middle and why is it missing locally?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's the kind of thing that used to exist and doesn't exist anymore. It's, it's that sort of the in-between of uh, standalone single-family units and larger apartment complexes. So things like a, a duplex or a fourplex uh, that kind of fill in that gap uh, and can often be more affordable than a single-family unit, probably more affordable than a lot of the mid-rise development that's happening in Midtown. So it's sort of the middle-sized and maybe kind of a middle-income range. Um, that it, it serves to meet.
0: And I think, and there's a couple of reasons why it's missing here. Um, one is that there are actually some tax disincentives to mm. building duplexes and quads in neighborhoods that I know the Division of Planning and Development um Along with the city and county, are trying to get amended at the state level. But there's actually some tax reasons why building that kind of property is not advantageous for the developer. And second of all, I think it's there's sort sort of his over the past few decades, there's been a sort of a you know public sentiment trend towards thinking that kind of thing is desirable. And I mean, I live you know in a neighborhood that have. You know, I'm between a, I'm I'm between a what was a triplex and I think an eightplex, and I've got single family homes, duplexes, quads, little apartment buildings, and I think that's great. But a lot of peop- people who live in this kind of neighborhood think it's great. But for a long time, that was just like you know, you do not want apartments in your in your neighborhood period. And now there's more people understand now there's t- talking about, you know, building back houses and people understand that those kind of, that kind of housing caters to a lot of people who might not be well-served by either apartment buildings or single-family houses. For a long time, it was not considered desirable. So I think that's one of the reasons it's missing. And when we say missing, we mean that that kind of housing is not being built right now. But as a community, as part of the plan, we've decided we want to build more of it and we're going to encourage it.
2: Yeah, build it in a quality way. I think there was a period in Memphis where we had those things being built by one particularly bad developer. Uh, they were very ugly. May he rests in peace. Yeah, <laughs> indeed.
0: So I know you also wanted to talk a little bit about community engagement since the engagement was a huge part of the plan. It seems to me it was very well done, but of course they did, a, they did these small area plans in the time of COVID. And so briefly, yeah. so we can get to talking about music, um, just share something about that as well.
2: Well, I mean, I was just curious about what the engagement process must have been like in this virtual environment because its we all know that community engagement is really difficult. It's difficult in Memphis because we don't really have a, a built-in structure, infrastructure for community engagements that in a way that a lot of other cities do. And so I've just been hopeful with this comprehensive planning process all along that, you know, hopefully having these district plans and small area plans, one thing that might come out of this is – some kind of a, a lasting structure that supports a robust uh, community engagement process so that you know people are not just engaged in this planning process, but if an issue comes up down the road, you have a, a existing set of folks that have been engaged that you can re-engage to have that flow of communication.
0: Yeah, I don't know to what extent that's been institutionalized as part of the planning process, but I agree with you. Um, that's certainly needed. And I'm, I think they're they're certainly better positioned through all of the planning work over the last couple of years, I think, to 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 sort of build on all the relationships they've developed. I agree with you. I think yeah. they I think they did a good job of it and uh in a very difficult time. So we don't have that much time, Charlie, but you know, you like to um when we when we talk about the shows, you like to have a song to reflect on. <laughs> and so lay it on me. It's one of my favorite artists.
2: Yeah, so. I'm thinking of neighborhood songs. I've got a lot of songs in my catalog of, of city songs that are neighborhood songs. So it was hard to choose. But my absolute favorite neighborhood song is a song called Third Base Dodger Stadium by Rye Cooter. Uh, it's, it's really it's a melancholy song. And it's really kind of a tangent from our conversation about Memphis 3.0, except that it's about a neighborhood. Um, and it's one of my favorites for a few reasons. It combines three things that I'm passionate about songs cities and baseball yes
0: yay all of those <laughs> uh, <laughs> i share your love for all of those
2: <laughs> exactly you know and in terms of the the utility my, the project that i'm working on is all about using songs to engage people and teach them about cities and this song more than any other in the catalog i think opens up the most doors you know it allows us to talk about demographic change and migration patterns of the 50s and westward population movement and robert moses and Highway construction, public housing, eminent domain, all these things. So it's from a a 2005 album called Chavez Ravine. And Chavez Ravine is the neighborhood in L.A. where Dodger Stadium was built in 1962. And you can't talk about Dodgers in L.A. without talking about why and how they left Brooklyn. Um, So this when they moved in in the late 50s, you saw a number of teams, baseball teams, starting to move to new markets. But these were typically teams that were kind of second fiddle in their original city, trying to find a place where they'd be the sole draw. So like the Boston Braves moving to Milwaukee, uh, the Philadelphia Athletics moving to Kansas City. And the other thing they had in common was that these were teams that were drawn to a new city by the promise of a publicly funded stadium, which was new. It wasn't well, the way that it That still happens. Yeah, that's a, that's the norm now, but it was not the norm then. Um, And the Dodgers were a different story. They were not a struggling franchise. They were very successful on the field financially. But their stadium, Ebbets Field, was kind of a mess. And the team owner, Walter O'Malley, uh, wanted to build a new stadium in part because there was no parking at Ebbets Field. And he knew that the automobile was going to be more and more important. Uh, He wasn't looking for a publicly built stadium. He wanted to build his own stadium in Brooklyn. But he couldn't do it without permission of Robert Moses, who was the quintessential super powerful bureaucrat that controlled all of development in New York. Um, and Robert Moses had his own ideas. He wanted the city to build a stadium and he wanted it to be in Queens. And so Walter O'Malley, you know, to him, if it wasn't going to be in Brooklyn, it might as might as well be on the other side of the country. So that opened a door to LA, um, which was not yet a major market. So this was kind of a gamble. But so the folks from LA took him on this helicopter tour to start, kind of scout out sites for a stadium. He sees this empty patch uh, of hilly land a couple miles from downtown, surrounded by freeways, which is perfect, right? I can build a stadium, a giant parking lot. People, people can get there easily. Well, that was Chavez Ravine. But it wasn't actually empty. It looked empty, but wasn't really empty. It had been this vibrant community from the early 1900s. It was kind of a semi-rural um mostly mexican american community and it was you know that was because at the time there were all these housing deed restrictions and if you were not white there was only a few places you could live and there weren't a lot of african americans that had migrated out west yet so it was this kind of mexican enclave pretty low income a lot of the homes didn't have plumbing or electricity but it was a close-knit community had their own schools and churches um and it actually wasn't Dodger Stadium that came in and wiped out the community. That was largely destroyed earlier, about 10 years earlier, by a, by a, a planned public housing complex. Um, so public housing had just passed. LA was going to put their public housing there. They came in, used Eminent domain to wipe out the entire neighborhood because they considered it a slum. Then a new mayor was elected and said, public housing is communist. We're not doing it. So they wiped all these people out didn't let any of them move back uh, and that became the land that LA purchased back from the federal government and gave to uh, Walter O'Malley to build his new stadium. And so the song Third Base Dodger Stadium is told from the perspective of a former resident who's now a a parking lot attendant who used to live where Third Base is now. Uh, So the lyrics of the song talk about different locations, you know, his grandmother lived where Second Base is, uh, where the 76 sign is that's where the, the shoe shine stall used to be. Um, so go and check it out, look it up, give it a listen.
0: Well it sounds like that's the whole history of planning in one in one story, <laughs> right?
2: Yeah. Public I mean, housing, eminent
0: like, domain, you know, the the, the cannot... machinations, machinations of a of a very powerful planning director. You kind of got it all there.
2: You can unlock all those stories through one side. Wow, that's
0: great. Well, thank, <laughs> on both thanks for sharing that. So uh, you've been listening to Memphis Metropolis and WYXR 91.7 FM. I've been talking to Charlie Santo from University of Memphis. He's our regular commentator. We were talking about small area plans and then uh, and then baseball, cities, and what was the third thing? Music, songs, song cities, <laughs> song cities in baseball. So thanks, Charlie. You bet. Thank you, Emily. You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenham. Memphis Metropolis airs every Monday at 1, so please tune in again next week. You can listen to past programs on our program page at wyxr.org or on memphismetropolis.com. You can also follow us and send feedback on social media. Now, stay tuned for Memphis Undercover with Nancy.